Genesis chapter 47. We'll read the chapter in its entirety, but our focus will be on verses 13 through 26. So we'll read all of Genesis chapter 47, but we'll focus on verses 13 through 26 this morning. People of God, this is the word of the Lord, so give heed and hear the word of the Lord. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your fathers and brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father, father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we in our land will be servants for for Pharaoh. Give us seed, that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities, from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, For the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh. And they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, For those of your household, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only. 
which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the length of Jacob's life was one hundred and forty-seven years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. And thus far, the reading of God's holy word this morning. As we come to our text this morning, it's good to have a little bit of a reminder of where we've been, where we're going, and what the whole point of what we read in the Joseph narrative is. Remember that the whole point of the Joseph narrative is God's deliverance of his people, God's salvation of his people, specifically God's salvation of his people through the seed of the woman. The Joseph narrative is not separated from that overarching theme of all of Genesis, the the promise of Genesis 3.15 of, of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And we've been watching the promise of the seed make its way all the way through the history of the people of Israel as presented to us in Genesis. And Joseph is no different. He's no different from Jacob or Isaac or Abraham or Noah or any of those presented to us as the woman's seed through whom God's promise of redemption will flow. Joseph is that woman's seed who is now providing salvation, providing deliverance of a temporal sort to ensure that the promise will continue to go. And ultimately, it's about his deliverance of the people of God, of the covenant community, of his fathers and of his brothers. But the thing about God's deliverance of his people is that as in accordance with his promise in Genesis chapter 12, that his blessing poured out on his people and his deliverance of his people will necessarily find itself overflowing into the nations around them. You will be blessed and I will make you a blessing to the nations around you. And Genesis chapter 47 lays that construct before us. Make no mistake, Genesis 47 is predominantly about God prospering and preserving his people through his provision, the the manifestation of his presence as we saw last week. That is what Genesis 47 is about. But right in the middle of Genesis 47, verses 13 through 26, we see both the means, another means by which God preserves and prepares his people, but also in which God's preservation of his people flows over into the nation of Egypt around them. That God's preserving of his people will also be a source of preserving the Egyptian nation. And so then Joseph is not only the means of blessing of God's people and preservation and deliverance of God's people, but also the nation of Egypt itself. Now, as we come to our text this morning, we read a text like this. At first blush, we're a little uncomfortable with how it is that God's deliverance and redemption and blessing is expressed to the Egyptian people. There's a construct going in there that that we personally read and we're probably not very comfortable with the way that it unfolds. Well, the reality is, is that this chapter isn't presenting what Joseph does here in a negative light, but in a very positive light. And so we need to take the time to put aside whatever impressions may arise from our own minds and our modern sensibilities and understand the text as it's laid out before us, especially when it comes to understanding Joseph and the role that he plays as a type of Christ, which we'll see at the end of the sermon. Because when we come to this text, the whole of Genesis 47, what we ought to walk away with is a rejoicing in the blessing of serving a wise and gracious ruler. Both the people of God are residing under the hand of Joseph as a wise and gracious ruler, and the Egyptians will be residing under Joseph as a wise and gracious ruler, though yet under Pharaoh as his 
ultimate head. And so the people of God ought to learn the lesson in both forms of deliverance suggested here in our text, that we ourselves are to rejoice in the blessing of serving a wise and gracious ruler. So let's bear that out as we come to the text this morning. And we'll consider two things before we come to ultimate application. The first thing that we'll consider are Joseph's limitations. And then secondly, we'll look at Joseph's gracious wisdom. Joseph's limitations and Joseph's gracious wisdom. And we won't spend a whole lot of time in that first element, Joseph's limitations, but it's important for us to note them because they provide the context and help us understand exactly why Joseph proceeds in the manner that he proceeds when it comes to the people of Egypt. And a good thing for us to remember when we come to a chapter like this is that narrative is not prescriptive. Narrative is descriptive. Right? So in Genesis 13 through 26, we're being told what happened, what Joseph did. But we're not necessarily to look at that and say that we're supposed to find prescription there. All right? So let's be sure that we understand that. So as we come to, gener- uh, to Joseph here in verses 13 through 26, we have to understand that there are at least two f- sorts of limitations that Joseph is going to have to operate under as he seeks to deliver the people of Egypt from the severity of the famine. And the first one is the cultural limitations. The re- reality is, is that in the ancient Near East, in this particular time in history, amongst the cultures all around, and even a bit in Israel, if you remember Leviticus chapter 25, is that if, if someone has something to give, they give it. They're not necessarily looking for, in their need, someone to give them without an exchange. Rather, in the cultural context of the day, if you have need, but you have a means, something which you may give in exchange for the meeting of that need, then you do it. That's the mindset that Joseph is operating under. Now, we may argue against that mindset all we want. It doesn't change the fact that that's the mindset. And Joseph isn't here trying to affect some sort of broad cultural change as he deals with the severity of the famine in the land. He has to preserve life. Now's not the time for a cultural change of mind. And so he has the limitation of the culture that's before him. That people in need, destitute people, as long as they have something to give, will strive to give that in exchange for their need to be met. And we'll see that at the end of the text itself, as it is the Egyptians themselves who offer up that exchange of our land and our lives for bread, for seed. You'll note that Joseph himself doesn't request that. That's what they offer up to him, that we'll give you even our land and our lives if you'll give us seed. So he has cultural limitations that he's working with. Beyond that, he has power limitations. Yes, Joseph is the vice-regent of Egypt. He is second under Pharaoh. But it doesn't change the fact that he's under Pharaoh. And so he's not free to do whatever he would want to do with the resources that belong to Pharaoh in whatever way that he would want to do so. We've already seen that in the way that he provides for Jacob and his brothers to come to the land of Goshen in Egypt, right? He goes and he tells Pharaoh about it. And it is Pharaoh who gives permission to extend the invitation to Jacob's fa- or to Joseph's family. And it is Pharaoh who gives the permission and sends all of the resources, the wagons and the provisions that will go to Jacob's family in order that they might all come up out of the land of Canaan and into Egypt. Right? It is Pharaoh who dispenses the goods. It is Pharaoh whose permission is required in order for those resources to be expended as they ought to be expended. Yes, Joseph is the one who directs those resources where they go, but he is not free with unlimited ability to do whatever he wants. He's not at liberty just to say, well, I'll just give you this grain. No, he has to consider Pharaoh's interest and Pharaoh's authority doesn't have the ability to just give away as he saw fit. So he has to work within the context that he finds himself. And as we examine the way in which he works within that context, we find rather than an oppressive tyrant, 
we find a gracious and a wise ruler who within that context is striving to deliver the Egyptian people as best he can. And so then, understanding Joseph's limitations, let's take the rest of our time together to look at Joseph's gracious wisdom. And something to remember here, a little note about the famine that's undertaken, or that the land is, is under, and that is that it's very severe. Now, usually we come to a text like this, and in our minds, we don't really take the time to actually picture what's happening. That's the idea. Oh, yeah, they're, they're kind of hungry, right? No, the idea is not that they are kind of hungry. And the idea is not like there's, there's you know, California where there are places of drought, but yet still here and there you can find lush and green areas. No, the idea here is that the people are starving. The people are starving on the verge of death. And the whole land itself is also languishing under the severity of this famine and the conditions that have produced it. It is an extremely desperate time where life literally hangs in the balance on a day-to-day basis based on whether or not somehow you can find food. Food for yourself, food for your household, food for your children, food for your livestock... The whole land and all the people in it, not just in Egypt, but in Canaan as well, are are languishing under this famine. And so thus, in need of deliverance, in need of salvation, in need of the preservation of their very lives, not just their former mode of living, not just sustaining themselves. They are in absolute need of salvation, as it were, deliverance from what is upon them. And so the text tells us in verse 13 that as according to what was laid out all the way in chapter 41, Joseph has been collecting both the grain and he has been selling the grain. That's exactly why Jacob and his sons have come up. He's been distributing it. People have been buying the grain. But now we have come to the point where in the land of Egypt and in all of the land of Canaan, all the money has been used up. Right? It's been used up. It's been collected up. There's, there's nothing left in terms of monetary exchange in terms of a store of value. And so, there's nothing left for them to give in terms of that commodity, whatever money would have been, mostly gold and silver. It's all gone. They don't have any more of it. And so they come to Joseph in verse 15, and they ask him, give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? So they're asking him that he would give them bread. Now remember, This is a culture and a context in which they're not going to be particularly willing for him to just give them bread and send them home. Nor actually would it be all that particularly advantageous if he just gives them bread and sends them home. And so his response to their predicament demonstrates the same wisdom that God has been graciously bestowing on him, as well as grace wrapped up in that. And you may wonder, well, well, how is that? Again, remember what the condition of the land is. It is languishing under this severe famine. And when you are living hand to mouth and barely able to do that, barely able to provide for your household, barely able to provide for your children, in fact, not able to provide for them at all, think about the extra burden then that the livestock becomes to you. It's all that much more grain that you need in order to continue and to sustain the life of your livestock. And so Joseph procures from the people their livestock in exchange for their grain, thus alleviating the burden of feeding their livestock while providing them that which was necessary for the sustenance of their families. And at the same same time, it's not as though these livestock are, are going into a particularly terrible situation. There's actually some grace for the animals themselves. Because remember, in in the first few opening verses here of Genesis 47, who is it that shepherds the livestock of Pharaoh? Able men from Jacob's family are in charge of all of the livestock. In the land of Goshen, 
where there is plenty, where there is abundant provision and supply. And so these livestock themselves are going into a condition in which they're going to be provided for instead of languishing alongside their owners. And so the livestock of the land will be preserved under the prosperous hand of Jacob's sons. The lives of the people of Egypt will be preserved as they have yet another year of sustenance to care for themselves, for their households, for their children. And that the text expects you to understand it in just that sort of wise and gracious way is found in the way that it expresses what Joseph has done here. He says in verse 17, after he exchanged the, exchanges the grain for the livestock, it says, Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. And in the English translation, that seems rather unremarkable. Right? It's just a statement of fact. They gave him his livestock, he gave them bread. Even transaction, all good. Except for the fact that language, Joseph fed in the Old Testament, is used fairly exclusively for the idea of shepherding herds, of shepherding flocks. This is shepherding language. But there's another place in which this sort of shepherding language is used not for flocks and for herds, but for God himself in Psalm 23, the idea of the shepherd who is shepherding his people. And so it's the the idea of his shepherding the people of Egypt, leading them, providing for them, giving them what is necessary in order that they might be led through yet one more year of this famine, closer to the end, closer to plenty that will follow after. And so the text gives us that idea that, that he is shepherding them. Not abusing them, not being oppressive, but shepherding them and leading them through the dire circumstances in which they find themselves. So we find the wisdom and the grace of this wise ruler and the way that he deals with the question of livestock and the impact of the famine on both the people owning them and the livestock themselves. But we also find his wisdom and grace expressed in the exchange between the people of Egypt and their ultimate becoming the servants of Pharaoh. So let's read through that again. When that year had ended, verse 18, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. Our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. Livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands, right? They're acknowledging the reality of the situation. We, only, we have nothing. We only have one thing to offer you. Remember the context. If they have it, they'll offer it. We have one thing to offer you, and that is our land and our bodies, our land and ourselves. And so they put before him, why should we die before you? Our land and our autonomy is not as important as the salvation of our lives. And so we are willing to give you our land, we are willing to give you our autonomy and our labor in exchange for our very lives. And that's what they say to him. Buy us and our land for bread, we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. And the plea of the Egyptians there, a particular phrase that they use, should be something that you notice. They say to him that we may live and not die. Where have we heard that phrase before? The text is using common phraseology that we've already seen when it comes to the people of God. Why does Jacob send his brothers down to Egypt to buy grain for the land? Why? Same construction, that we may live and not die. When Judah pleads with Jacob to send them down into the land again, what does he say? Same construction, that we may live and not die. And that's the whole point. That's the reason that God put Joseph there to begin with. That the people of God may live and not die, and that the Egyptians may live and not die. They're coming to Joseph for the same deliverance that his family came 
And so at their plea, he agrees to those terms as it were in verse 20. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh. Notice who's the one who allots the rations. Notice that Joseph can't overturn what Pharaoh does there. And they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. When Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your household, and as food for your little ones. Excuse me. Notice how that mirrors verse 12 of 47. Then Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. You see the comparison being made here. Both people groups are being delivered through the wise rulership of Joseph. And so as the people put themselves before Joseph and they say, so that we may live and not die, so that our very lives might be saved, take our lands, take our labor. And Joseph, in wisdom and grace, accepts the terms and lays out the arrangement in the most gracious way imaginable given the context. You'll see his wisdom first and foremost with what he does to the people in verse 21. And so he takes the people and he moves them into the cities. Well, why is that significant? Where's the grain stored, if you remember Genesis 41? It's stored in the cities. He's taken the people. He's made it possible them for them to have close and easy access to the grain and to the seed that they would need both to feed their families and to eventually, because the expectation is that eventually they will sow their fields again, to have both grain to eat and seed for their field. So he wisely maneuvers them into the position where they're going to have ease of access to all of the grain that they'll need to provide for their needs. But not only that, <clears throat> but not only that, there's wisdom and grace in the way that he lays out the terms of the arrangement. Basically, even though the the talk is we will be Pharaoh's slaves, you'll notice that basically what Joseph does is turn them into indentured servants. It's almost sort of a, a feudal system, if you think about the Middle Ages, in which the serfs worked the land for the lords. And if you had a good lord, he, he, he made sure that you were able to keep that which you needed for the sustenance of your family, for your health and well-being, and then took a portion of that for himself. It's that sort of a thing. We're not talking about uh, the oppressive uh, chattel slavery of like African slavery. Rather, he produces a system in which, their, in which their servanthood, in which their slavery works out for their benefit, for their good. And so while their autonomy might be gone, yet their lives are preserved, cared for in the best possible way. And we see that in a number of ways. The first one being in the tax itself and what it is that they are to give in exchange for the grain in this servanthood. And he gives them, essentially, what the tax was before the famine ever started, right? The same arrangement. He tells Pharaoh that in God's wisdom, you should collect one-fifth of all of the grain every year and put it aside. And so that paradigm still applies. He says that one-fifth, verse 24, you shall give to Pharaoh, four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for your field and for your food, for those of your households and as food for your little ones. What's his concern in setting up this arrangement? To give them enough so that their, that, their own, that their own lives, that their household's lives, that their family's lives might have enough, might have abundant and lasting provision. That's the way he's constructing this arrangement. And he does so by the means of that 20%. So he takes a fifth, they keep four fifths. 
which might not seem all that remarkable until you recognize that in every record of these types of arrangements, which are actually common in the ancient Near East, that the tax rate is usually 40%, and not unlikely 60%. In other words, he is significantly under what is common for his day in order that instead of extracting from them more than was necessary, he might take what will accomplish the same purpose as it did before the famine and give them as much as they could in order to ensure their, ensure their well-being as opposed to his own enrichment. Which, by the way, none of this goes to his own enrichment. It all goes to Pharaoh. And so we see his wisdom in constructing this arrangement that while they have lost their freedom in a sense, yet they're free to work for their work the land for their food and to keep four-fifths of what he provides for them. And thus they shall be well fed and secure. And of course it will have the same effect as the arrangement before the famine began. There's a forward-looking element to this plan. That now, going forward, there will always be this safety net, this security in case this sort of famine ever happens again. As, as, the, ter- as, the, as the, the fifth is collected and stored, if we come to this, to this sort of situation again, then we have provided for us what we need to make it through another one of these severe So he's providing not only safety, stability, security, and provision in the context he's in to this immediate generation. He's setting up a system that will provide that same thing year after year after year and 400 years later, give or take. 400 years later, the wisdom seen in, in Joseph's administration is still in place. Verse 26, and Joseph made a law over the land of Egypt to this day. And so we see the wisdom and the grace of Joseph and the way that he handles the issue of the livestock and the way that he handles the issue of the very lives of the Egyptians themselves, of their land and their lives, to provide for them in the context that he's in, everything that they will need for the preservation of their life for their redemption, for their salvation. And we notice the reaction of the Egyptians. And as we notice the reaction of the Egyptians, as I said way back at the beginning, we need to avoid the temptation to read modern sensibilities back into the text. Yes, the Egyptians are desperate. There's no mistake about that. But a negative statement of what they say here under the duress of the famine is it's an anachronistic imposition on the text of what it's trying to express, what it's trying to say. Because the cry of the Egyptians of Joseph as Savior is thoroughly consistent with how the Scripture represents Joseph here in his capacity as this wise ruler. So after he accepts their terms, he, he, looks, he puts before them what this arrangement will look like. He says to them, you have saved our lives. <clears throat> Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And in their declaration that you have saved our lives, we're reminded once again, as we've already seen in chapter 45 and chapter 46, and as we'll see again in chapter 50, of the very reason God sent Joseph down to Egypt to begin with. What's the significance of their saying, you have saved our lives? It's the text showing us that Joseph has done exactly what God sent him to do. Verse 5 of chapter 45, to save life. Verse 20 of chapter 50, to save many souls alive. The administration of Joseph not only saves the lives of the covenant community, but of the nation of Egypt as well. He is a blessing to the nations. He's a blessing to the covenant community. The preserver of both. The savior after a sort of both. And because he has saved them, 
He has saved their lives. Then the Egyptians declared to him that we will be Pharaoh's servants. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. They're not unhappy with their arrangement. They're glad in it. They're rejoicing in it. That they have security, stability, their very lives now preserved. And so they will rejoice, they will beg the favor of Joseph, and they will gladly and happily be Pharaoh's servants. So then what do we do with the text before us? We need to see it as what it is. Remember the emphasis of all of Genesis and put on a very particular display here in the Joseph narrative is this. God's redemption, God's salvation, God's preservation and giving of life through the seed of the woman. Joseph here standing as that seed of the woman, ultimately a type of the seed of the woman, of Jesus Christ himself. You have God's redemptive purpose on display in the wise administration of Joseph, whom he sent down there. And when we come to this idea of this, of this famine in the land of Egypt and we work through the history of the people of God and we come into the new covenant and we begin to see the way that the new covenant understands these narratives, we learn this central, this central fact that on display for us in this little parentheses between the, between the history of the people of God, sections of the history of the people of God, is nothing less than the gospel itself. The Egyptians are desperate. Their their position is perilous. They're on the edge of death because of the famine in the land. And they need a wise ruler to do that which is necessary to provide them with life. And that is the case for every human being that's ever existed since the time of the fall. Except for our famine is much worse than a famine in the land of Egypt. It's much worse than a lack of supply of physical bread. It is the inability to provide for ourselves the spiritual bread that we need to save our lives for eternity, not just for a few years before our generation passes away. We need the wise ruler to provide us with life through his provision of the bread of life. That's the connection. Joseph gives them bread. Jesus gives us bread. But the thing is, is that in order to go to the wise ruler for bread, we have to recognize that we need the bread and we need the one who provides the bread. The Egyptians come before Joseph and they say, give us bread, we're desperate, we're needy, we're on the verge of death itself, give us bread. And so if we are to have eternal bread, we come before Jesus Christ, the ruler, the wise ruler, and we beg him for the bread that he has, willing to give him everything, our bodies, our possessions, Everything in order that we might have the bread that he offers as a wise and gracious ruler. So the call of the gospel, let's be clear here. The call of the gospel is for you to give up everything to the wise and gracious ruler in order that you might have the bread that he provides because it's the bread that matters most. And so yes, the call of the gospel is a call to, to trust, to faith in Jesus Christ for deliverance from sin, from deliverance from its penalty, from deliverance to its slavery. All of that is true. But the call of the gospel is a call for you to give up everything in order to have this bread of life, even your bodies and your lives themselves. We need to be honest about that because if there's anyone here who is yet to profess faith in Christ, you need to understand what what the cost is. It's less a cost if it's worth it. But nonetheless, 
We are giving up everything to Christ because we trust Him as the wise and gracious ruler who will give us what we need for life and everything else beside that to prosper and to flourish under His wise and gracious rule. If you have yet to put your faith in Christ, again, today is the day of salvation. And for those of us who have done that, at least in the beginning processes and stages of the life of faith, the process of salvation, our sanctification, the question is, what do we do with this text? And oftentimes we'll find that the application and from many, for many is one of governance. And we look to this text and we find for us a, a model or a statement of, 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 of the importance of wise and godly leaders. And that's true. But it's not the point of the text, at least not directly. Genesis 47 isn't about governmental policy. It certainly demonstrates the value and the blessing of wise earthly rulers who, as Joseph did, rule in recognition of God's providence and independence upon his rule, but that on his wisdom, but that's not the point. Rather, the greatest point is the point of the Joseph narrative in all of Genesis. We've already said over and over again. God sent Joseph into Egypt and raised him to prominence in order that he might save many souls alive. And in doing so, then, he becomes a type of Christ. And we've already seen that type of Christ in, in Joseph's humiliation and in his exaltation. We've already seen that typology in the way that he, that he brings his brothers to repentance And through their repentance, reconciliation. And now the typology is in providing bread for the nation of Egypt. And here's the thing that we as saints must recognize day to day to day to day. We were the Egyptians. That is who we were. In two ways. One, in our spiritual impoverishment and famine. In the throes of death itself because of that impoverishment. But secondly, now on the, on the other side of his deliverance, of, on the other side of receiving the bread of life, in God's wise and gracious meeting of our need through Christ and of our giving to this wise ruler our bodies, our labor, our very lives. That's what we read in Romans chapter 12. What is the call of the Apostle Paul in light of this whole wonderful arguing about what has God done in Christ and what it produces or ought to produce in the life? He then makes the call to the people there that he's writing that epistle to. And what does he say to them? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, to do what? To present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to God to give all of who you are to the one who sets you free, to the one who has delivered you. Give all that you are to Him. The Egyptians had to give all that they were to Joseph in order for that deliverance to have its effect. And so we give all to Christ as the consequence of His his deliverance. We shouldn't have a problem with slavery of this type, saints, because this is the slavery that we are called to in the gospel itself. As Paul reminds the Corinthian believers that instead of using their bodies in service of their own selfish desires, rather to consider what? You are bought with a price and so serve God in your bodies. In other words, saints, you have been delivered not so that you might just have life, but also so that you might be restored to that position of honored service that Adam had at the beginning of creation. Adam was there to serve his God. To serve his God as his image bearer. To do work, to tend to the garden. To spread that image through all of the world. His his life was to be in service to his God. And it hasn't changed. It's just that in the gospel we are set free to once again pursue that path. And so we do all life long. Offering to God our hearts, our minds, our souls, our hands. 
all of who we are in service of the one who saved us from the sure death of our spiritual famine through the blood and the body of his son. That we might have life, that we might have deliverance, that we might have it more abundantly as we serve him and do exactly what Romans says in our service. Find out what is the good, perfect, acceptable, pleasing to us, acceptable will of God. That even in this service, there is great blessing because of the wisdom and the grace of our ruler. And so then, saints, respond to Jesus, our King, Jesus, our wise and gracious rulers, as the people of Egypt responded to Joseph, the wise and gracious rulers, to rejoice in our salvation, to praise Him from our deliverance, and dedicate ourselves to His service. Which just so happens to be a major theme of the book of Exodus and all the rest of the Pentateuch. God has delivered you from the land of Egypt. Now serve him. So then, saints, rejoice in the blessing of serving a wise and gracious ruler who saves. Let's pray together this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have your Son as our King. For we have been given the wisest and the most gracious ruler that ever we could have been given. Joseph, just a type, just a faint shadow of what was to come in the wonderful deliverance of your people from slavery, from sure spiritual death and eternal separation from you. Deliverance and salvation from that in the wise and gracious offer of bread from our King, the bread of life himself. Father, thank you for the bread of life. Thank you for our wise and gracious King. We ask that you would put upon our lips praise for your name, praise to him as well, for the great salvation that you have wrought in him, for his wisdom, for his grace for our renewed ability to serve and in that serve service to find abundance, to find out just how acceptable his righteous rule is and how acceptable your will is. And Father, we ask that that truth might, might break its way into the hearts and minds of people the world over. That is the essence of your kingdom that we pray would come, that is the essence of your will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. That people might know deliverance. That they might hear the offer of spiritual bread to deliver from spiritual famine and death in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our King and Savior. They might give over anything in order to lay hold of that bread of life and to be filled And that they might find in it, just as we find day to day, how good and acceptable your will is. How blessed service to a wise and gracious ruler is. And so through your gospel, may your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, you have given us spiritual bread, but we also still yet have need for physical bread as well to sustain us in the service of your kingdom as we seek to advance it, as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And so we ask that you would sustain us with physical bread and physical nourishment and physical provision in all of the many ways that we need it. Father, we think this morning of of Alex and Daniel Karsich. How grateful we are that after these many years and after all of the frustrations and the delays, you have provided them what they have longed for with a son. 
But Father, yet there is a little more time to go in the journey. Still a flight to be made and and time to be spent to get to know him and to fulfill all of those things that Bulgaria is going to require of them and time to be spent coming home and and time to begin learning how to be parents and to, to deal with all of the things that will be set before them as you have blessed them in this way. And so we ask then that you would provide them with safety as they travel, that you would provide them with, with wisdom as they interact with those in a foreign land and perhaps even provide them with the opportunity to spread your gospel, that you would give them patience and temperance and long-suffering as new parents and grace and wisdom to handle all of the challenges that come with that before them in the years to come that you would provide for them in that way their daily bread as they seek to be of service in your kingdom in this way and as we praise you for this great blessing for them. Father, we come before you this morning. Indeed, we ask that you would forgive us of our sin. Father, forgive us for how often we forget whose servants we are. Forgive us for how often we forget the price that was paid in order that we might be set free. Forgive us for how often we forget how gracious your provision of a wise and gracious ruler and spiritual bread through him is. And seek to strip back our autonomy to serve ourselves rather than the living God. Yet remind us, that the spiritual bread that we have been given is that which we feast upon day by day and it never runs short of supply. And even when we sin, even when we falter, yet the pardon of Christ rests upon us. Freedom from death and spiritual famine rests upon us. And so assure your people of the pardon that is ours through your wise and gracious ruler, Jesus Christ. Father, teach us to forgive as we have been forgiven. Father, that we be willing to extend to others the same grace that we have been extended, the same mercy that's been given to us in whatever small capacity we can. And lead us not into temptation as we go into the world in which we live. Rather, through your grace and your spirit within us, guide us by your word, by your means of grace, and deliver us from evil and from the evil one. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, our King, our wise and gracious ruler, Jesus Christ. And we ask them of you. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.